0: I just invite you to sit for a moment. Today's gospel is one of the most famous gospels that there are. You know what it is. Has anyone read the gospel before coming here? It's the it's the Pharisee and the tax collector, which I'm sure you knew, right? The Pharisee and tax collector. One of the most famous gospel passages that there are. This teaching of Jesus is is known even to the unreligious let the first man cast the stone all of those these have marked society's consciousness in a kind of permanent way but do they speak to us still because they must if they don't then what are we doing here you know just playing out a script what does it say to you today the church desires for you as an individual and for us as a church to hear this story again that it might mark more deeply the consciousness that we have. If I may, in preparation for hearing that, I'd like to invite you to do two things. Firstly, before we call on God's mercy as we do at the beginning of every Mass and sing the Gloria, let's first stand in our minds alongside all the sinners of the world because that's who we are. We come here saying, Lord, have mercy precisely because we need that mercy. We can't last a day without it. Think of those who most recently offended you. Think of those with whom you are unable to be reconciled for whatever reason. Think of those most demonized people in our world. Those who we've been happy at times to sling mud at with the crowd. If we cannot do this, if we cannot call these people to mind and stand here arm in arm with them as fellow sinners in need of God's mercy, then today's parable has already gone to waste. You will not hear it. But if each of us can stand here, even for a brief moment, with the Judases and the Hitler's of the world, with the prostitutes and tax collectors, the abortionists, the corrupt policymakers, all of us coming with sometimes great, great baggage, if we can come in that crowd, then God's transformative mercy, which is sufficient for all of us, will have full liberty in us and touch us most deeply, even where it is painfully uncomfortable. Secondly, since we already know this story quite well, I encourage us, please, to listen very, very closely to the first reading from Ecclesiastes about prayer and how God is completely immune to outward appearances. He's neither impressed by what impresses us nor scandalised by what scandalises us. But he simply sees and knows and continues to call. I'd invite us to listen to Psalm 34 telling us how God turns to every need that we bring to him and turns very urgently. I'd invite us to listen to St. Paul's letter to Timothy wherein he speaks of the great long battle of faith he has endured and the contentment that's come as a result of this. If we want to be counted as saints among saints in the halls of heaven as we say in our prayers, Then we're going to have to stand right now as a great crowd of sinners calling on God's mercy. So let's stand. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke. Jesus spoke the following parable to some people who prided themselves on being virtuous and despised everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood there and said this prayer to himself. I thank you, God, that I am not grasping, unjust, adulterous like the rest of mankind, and particularly that I am not like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes on all I get. The tax collector stood some distance away not daring even to raise his eyes to heaven but he beat his breast and said God be merciful to me a sinner this man I tell you went home again at rights with God the other did not for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the man who humbles himself will be exalted the gospel of the lord to you, Jesus so we hear this parable again have we heard it i hope we have i hope we've prepared and our ears are attentive i think if we're honest we didn't just hear this parable this morning for the first time in a long time we hear this story hundreds of times if not thousands of times we see it in all kinds of displays you know the the interplay between pride and humility. We've seen it played out right before our eyes in the pretentious performances of press conferences. We've seen it in the workplace, in the strange dynamics that occur there. We've seen it perhaps in our children, or in our loved ones, in our closest friends. And certainly, I think we see it at times in ourselves. We all show a tendency at times to sway between the Pharisee and the tax collector, In chapter 18 of Luke's gospel but I really feel like I need to make one thing clear and it's sort of the opposite of what I said as we prepared for mass the parable is not designed to affirm the sinner or to denounce the virtuous because this would be outrageous God does not actually like sin and God does in fact call us to virtue so we would make a great mistake if we read the parable that way put another way this parable is not like the parable of the sheep and the goats in chapter 25 of matthew's gospel where the tax collector is the sheep and the pharisee is the goat this parable does not function that way to put it very plainly this parable is not about pharisees or tax collectors at all this parable is about me This parable is about you this parable is about us at every level individually and societal this parable is the story of every single one of us struggling with the task of prayer of living a sincere life and trying to make the world a better place rather than a more broken one it's about not being in denial about the brokenness we see whilst at the same time not falling into hopelessness and despair. This is the story of each of us wrestling with our pride and our failure, and by contrast with God's lavish, undeserved grace. Is that okay? That's what this story is about. I think I have to say all this at the outset to haul us up out of the boring, false dichotomy of, am I a Pharisee or am I a tax collector? No. We're both. We have both at work in us all the time. If we try to distance ourselves from either one of the characters, maybe quite naturally we feel a, an affinity with one of the characters, and that's okay. But if subconsciously or consciously we're distancing ourselves and saying, I'm not like the tax collector, I'm not like the Pharisee, we've fallen into the same sorry trap that the Pharisee in the parable is in, of comparing, thinking that he can weigh merits like that. Let me ask this is there anything intrinsically wrong with pharisees no there can't be is the pharisaic movement itself wrong no it can't be in jesus's time there were samaritans pharisees zealots publicans scribes sadducees these were all groups of jews working out of their Particular beliefs, their particular priorities, infidelity to what they had inherited. The Pharisees were devout lay people who strove to be experts in the law. So think, for example, of Sister Noreen's Bible study group over there. You know, pressing into the Bible, gathering to discuss it, trying their best to live in fidelity to it. I'm not calling them Pharisees, but I'm saying this this idea is pretty close to home. Okay, they're not some strange alien that we need to demonize. The Pharisees. Were these people? They preserved the tradition of Israel very, very well. Remember the temple in Jerusalem, where a whole lot of sacrifice was offered—animal sacrifices by the high priest. King Solomon built it, and the priests would offer sacrifice there. The king of Babylon destroyed it. It was rebuilt centuries later. The Greeks wrestled for it over the Jews. There was a great war uh, over over territory. If you want to read about that, look at the book of Maccabees. Very, very exciting story about the Greeks trying to override the jews and they couldn't really for the most part it was looted it was desecrated and eventually just before the time of jesus that same temple was known as herod's temple so it's been reclaimed by some random uh roman procurer you know some some authority for the romans so the romans have claimed it and after the time of jesus it was destroyed the temple worship life could not have preserved the faith because it ended abruptly and it was interrupted up until then anyway. So with the practices of temple worship so consistently interrupted and eventually permanently closed, who do we have to thank for the tradition of the Jews which we've inherited? The Pharisees in, big, in, in a large way. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. There's this great joke that the Pharisees were often grouped with the Sadducees But the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. Hence, they were sad, you see. It's a bit of a joke. It's a horrible joke as well. The Pharisees had a vibrant faith, and they aspired to virtue. And finally, if all that is not enough to convince us, Jesus chose a Pharisee as one of the apostles. After he died and rose. That's Paul. Paul says, I was a Pharisee. We hear about it in the Acts. If we want to turn our back on the Pharisees, we'll have to throw out two-thirds of the New Testament and basically all of the Old Testament. We can't do that because it would just be insane. So, in a way, we stand on the shoulders of Pharisaic schools. Interesting. Who was most interested in Jesus' ministry? Who was following him all the time, looking through windows, arguing with him, double-checking what he was doing, what his motives were? The Pharisees were so interested in the Messiah. If we want to throw out pharisaic thought we'll have to throw out these words by Saint Paul listen to this and listen how strikingly this resembles the gospel passage we've just heard of the caricature of that Pharisee Saint Paul in Galatians chapter 5 says I tell you be guided by the Spirit and you will no longer yield to self-indulgence the desires of self-indulgence are always in opposition to the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are always in opposition to self-indulgence they are opposites one against the other this is how you are prevented from doing the things that you want to none of us truly wants to do evil i think all of us have an intrinsic desire for the good but something stifles us and paul's getting at it but when you are led by the spirit you are not under the law when self-indulgence is at work the results are obvious sexual vice, impurity and sensuality, the worship of false gods and sorcery, antagonism and rivalry, jealousy, bad temper and quarrels, disagreements, factions and malice, drunkenness, orgies and all such things. About these, I tell you now, as I have told you in the past, the people who behave in these ways will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are strong words and it's in the New Testament so we can't just chuck it out strong strong words to sit with now we might think what a pharisaic thing to say well in a way yeah paul knew the law but paul also knew what the law was for paul describes the law as a pedagogue, or in one translation it says like a nanny in the ancient jewish world the little jewish children would have what's called a pedagogue. imagine like a really strict tutor who was interested not only in their education but in their their conduct. So he'd walk around them with a little stick and he'd say, "Hey, sit up straight, listen to the teacher, memorize your Torah, you know, and he'd really be on their case. Paul says the law is kinda of like a pedagogue following you around, smacking you on the back. It's not the most pleasant thing, but at least it keeps you on the track. Paul says, now we've received the Spirit. We don't need someone with a stick whacking us anymore because we've breathed in the very mind of God. It, it, it compels us from within. From our own emotions from our own hopefully desires and imagination so there's a transition here he's not saying the law was wrong he's saying the law has been superseded by something far more intimate and beautiful and he goes on to say he advocates to not so much trust in the law but to live now in the spirit and he says in in the same chapter on the other hand the fruits of the spirit are love joy peace patience kindness goodness trustfulness gentleness and self-control the things of heaven no law can touch such things as these when you are led by the spirit you are no longer under the law isn't it a beautiful progression of, of i guess moral growth of human flourishing the law kind of gives you a bit of a context and then in the spirit you just leap And you leap into God's mercy, because our leaps are sometimes miscalculated, you know. Jesus chose a Pharisee, this is ironic, to speak to the Gentiles. Wouldn't you think Jesus would send a Pharisee to the Jewish world? He knew the law, they're working out of the law. But instead, Peter is to go and speak to the the Jews, and Paul, the Pharisee, is to go to the Gentiles. This is part of the strange, upside-down logic of God because he simply does not think as we think. His ways are not our ways. Jesus called a Pharisee. Jesus also called a tax collector, Matthew. By the way, Matthew was not only an apostle but an evangelist. The gospel is from him, a tax collector. Tax collector, Pharisee, right in the same mission. Is it starting to become clear to us? Jesus calls everyone without exception to know him to love him and to make him known do you hear jesus calling you